We're going to begin uh, the Sabbath School on a different note today because we ended up in a really important conversation. So I'm going to just let this roll. We're talking about uh, the Battle of Armageddon. We're talking about Revelation 18, no, 16, and the last plagues. We're talking about the close of probation. So uh, you're welcome to listen in. Yeah, I struggle with all of these things because really, I mean, we're not sure, I mean, 100% certain of what what's going to develop or how it's going to be done. Um, and and with this Satan, you know, simulating Jesus and all of this, where is that going to happen? Obviously, it's not worldwide. can't be worldwide. It can on television. Yeah. It can on television now, yeah, and it, and it has been like I know there have been people saying that they're Jesus and and they healed and they do all these sort of things. Could that have happened already? And we're expecting something in the future that it's already going to be looking like Christ. He's bright. He's an angel. He's glorious and he's wonderful and bright. And the people we've seen before that say that Christ don't do that. They're just right. a human standing there. Yeah. But this thing about why is the Sabbath so critical? Mm-hmm. So in the quarterly they brought out about go that this imitation Christ will say, I'm changing it to Sunday. But I, it seems, the only thing I think of is those six days of extreme power that God has. He's infinite. It goes on. He's power. So what does he do with his power on Sabbath? He suddenly says, now, okay, now look at what I've done and, you know, creation I've done this for you he didn't say you better do this see how powerful I am there was no force involved at all mm-hmm. so that the Sabbath issue is always keeps coming to the forefront that this is a critical point there actually it is a critical point mm-hmm. and here it is um, he, she says the Sabbath will be the great test of loyalty mm-hmm. for it is the point of truth mm-hmm. especially controverted it seems arbitrary it seems arbitrary, so why not change it? And, and here's the thing. If the Sabbath is merely a legal day and we're in a legal construct, there's no reason not to change it because anything legal can be changed. All, all the laws of the land that are involved in, in legal constructs can be changed. The truth is the Sabbath is not legal. It is cosmological. It's part of creation. And, and therefore, it is tied to an event in history that cannot be changed. God himself cannot go back and undo that event. Mm-hmm. And that's true of every event in history. And, and God's, God's way of commending his trustworthiness to us is by his actions. Those actions are events that cannot be changed. Mm-hmm. So that's why the Sabbath can't be changed. It's tied to, to God's actions of creation. That can be changed. And, but there's more, and I'm still exploring this. Uh, if you take the first story of creation in Genesis, and you compare it with the Babylonian creation, which comes the closest to having similar elements. What's the Babylonian creation? It's Called, the ti- Babylonian title is Enuma Elish, and it's the story of uh, how Marduk gained supremacy over the gods uh, by conquering Tiamat, the god of chaos. Did you take books of Moses from me? Okay, yeah, so this is, he, right. he's already had this. 
she he uh, conquered Tiamat, who was kind of the mother goddess of all the gods, who came up against the gods with her battles, her um, armies. And um, out of her carcass, he creates the world. And there's a similar kind of sequence going on uh, somewhat in Adam Elish to what goes so on in their Genesis story of creation. 1. It's, so it's their story of creation. Oh, okay. it, it, they, they would consider it a story about Marduk rather than a story of creation, but there's certainly creation in it. And the whole concept of, of rest, and this is, I didn't teach you this, Jose, uh, the concept of rest in Numa Elish is very closely related and seems to kind of dovetail with the concept of appeasement. Whereas that word rest, even though it may be the same word used in Babylonian texts, that word rest is never used as appeasement in terms of creation. The closest you get to that is in Ezekiel, where Ezekiel God says, I will rest my case or something like that. But in, in creation, God is never appeased. He's never, his wrath is not evident at all. Whereas, and his, there's no violence, there's no killing. Whereas in, in Numa Elish, Tiamat is slain. Out of her carcass, creation is, is made uh, by Marduk. And then, in order to create human beings, they slay her consort, who uh, was uh, the one who incited her to rebellion. Kingu, they slay him and create human beings out of his blood. So if you compare these two ancient texts that are fairly closely, I think Genesis actually could precede, if, if you give it the earlier date, it could precede Babylon creation. Most, most non-conservative scholars say it succeeds Babylon creation. It doesn't matter to me in, in terms of what it conveys because if you look at if you look at it as, as later, why did the writer take such great pains to avoid the things that were in the Babylonian creation? You know, it's obvious he's trying to make a point. You don't have so it, so the the biblical creation is sands that is without uh, violence, without bloodshed, without um, appeasement, without anger divine anger, all of those things that are so very Babylonian. This without all of them. The Sabbath symbol, uh, the Sabbath stands for that. It represents all of that. So God's rest is cessation from work. See, he's because he's finished. It means completion. Sabbath means completion. God's work is finished. And, and because the Sabbath, Ellen White says in Patriarchs and Prophets, says the Sabbath is wholly commemorative. That means it doesn't, it, it doesn't have a legal basis. It doesn't have a uh, practical significance of, uh, you know, this is the day we worship because this is the day we worship. It doesn't have a, a, a uh, strong inherent significance. It is representative. It represents something. And what it represents, to me, looking at all the evidence, is a God who does not kill, a God who does not get angry, a God who is not appeased, a God who is not violent. I like that. It's beautiful. 
So if it's wholly commemorative, that's what it represents. And, and it, therefore, it can become, I believe that the, the, Hebrew, the Israelites left Egypt on Sabbath. Mm. And the reason is because they keep their first Sabbath <coughs> about a week later. And there's another reason in the text that I can't remember. I'd have to look at it. So they leave Egypt on Sabbath? I think they left Egypt on Sabbath, the day of freedom. So the Sabbath in, in Deuteronomy 5 right. is now tied to the exodus from Egypt because on that day God saved you from slavery and led you out of Egypt. And then you have, again, Jesus finishing the work of salvation at the cross and crying out, it is finished. What do you have at the end of creation week? Now that everything was finished and God rested on the Sabbath day or he stopped on the Sabbath day. Jesus rests in the tomb. On the Sabbath day. Completed his work. He completed his work. So now we have the whole span of what, who God is, what he represents. And you don't have God killing his son and out of his blood reviving people for, to life, giving people life. That isn't how that works. The blood represents the truth about God, which is what I've established from doing a whole study of it. So that, to me, is why the Sabbath is so crucial. Um, it's not because, well, you just got to keep it because God said so, and there's no good reason. It's not arbitrary. It's very much tied to him. all the things that God represents. So our understanding then has to move away from sprinkly blood and Christ's blood and all these sort of concepts. Well, it, it doesn't have to move away from the blood. Blood is very important. The Israelite community and the Hittite communities were the only ones that did blood manipulation and sacrifices. Babylon, no blood uh, in their sacrifices. Uh, but in their myths, yes. And, and the thing is, it's what we think about the blood let me give you a short Bible study on the blood, okay. since this is very crucial to Revelation too. Blood is through the last few chapters of Revelation. Turn to Genesis chapter 4. You're going to be going all through the Bible, so Genesis chapter 4, verse 10. And the Lord said to, Abel, uh, to Cain, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground. The source of the curse is from the ground. God doesn't curse him. He just says, you are cursed from the ground. Which has opened his mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. The ground is rejecting Cain. So the blood cries out from the ground. We assume that the blood is crying out for vengeance and retaliation. That's the human way of doing things, right? Now we'll go to Hebrews 12.24. This is very important because the context. You have, at verse 18, You have not come to something that can be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice who made the hearers beg that not another word be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even an animal touches the mountain, it shall be stoned to death. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, 
and to innumerable angels in a festival gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel. Now my version has speaks better word than the blood of Abel. Why does it speak more graciously? Why does it speak a better word? Why does Jesus' blood speak? It speaks. Well, it says curse, something. For one thing, the the blood of Abel cries out to the ground from the ground for vengeance. Yeah. There's no revenge. Jesus doesn't cry out. His blood doesn't cry out for revengeance. revenge. Yeah. It cries out. It is finished. It is enough. Hmm. What were you saying? I'm sorry. No, no, no. I was just I was trying to figure out what you were asking. You said, well, for one thing, it's not crying out the curse. Right. It's not a curse. So if Jesus' blood speaks, what does it say? Now let's go to John 1. I have a whole handout on this. <laughs> I'm trying to run through this handout, but unfortunately I don't have it memorized. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I'm going doing this backwards, I just realized. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What, came, come, what has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. Now hold your finger there and turn to Leviticus 17. Okay, we'll start with verse 10. If any one of the house of Israel or the aliens, or of the aliens who reside among them, eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood, and I will cut that person off from the people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you for making atonement for your lives on the altar. For as life, it is the blood that makes atonement. Now, go back to John. Verse 3, the last line. What has come into being in him was life. And the life was the light of all people. Whose life is in the blood, sacrificial blood, that makes atonement? Jesus. Jesus. And the life of Jesus is the light of all people. That's the shortcut. There's a longer way to do this. Uh, But that's the shortcut. the, The life of Christ. So go to John chapter 6. Jesus has just fed the 5,000, and he goes away before they can make him king, and they follow him. So verse 25, John 6. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for it is on him that God the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, What must we do to perform the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Put your trust in me. That's what you're to do. That's the work of God. So they said to him, What sign are you going to give us so that we are going to give 
what sign are you going to give us then so that we may see it and believe in you? They just ate the food. I know. It's just it's kind of crazy how we humans operate. So they said to him, "What sign are you, oh say, what work are you performing? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat." Then Jesus said to them, "Very truly, I tell you, it was not Moses. You know, Jesus is always having to put Moses peg down. Mm-hmm. They have him up there as a right. god." Right. Mm-hmm. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but it was my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread from God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life. There's that word again, life, to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Everything that the Father gives me will come to me. Anyone who comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will who sent me of him who sent me that I should lose nothing if he has given me but raise it up in the last day. God wants to save everybody. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. This is indeed the will of my Father that all who see the Son and trust in him may have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. Then the Jews began to complain about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not complain among yourselves. No one can come to me unless drawn by the Father who sent me, and I will raise that person up on the last day. I will give life. I am the bread of life. I will raise them up as lot into life. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, whoever trusts has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate brana in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever, and the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? By the way, there's a Babylonian work of creation called Atrahasis, in which they slay a god, and out of his flesh and blood they create human beings. Now, look at how Jesus uses this metaphor. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Are we going to become cannibals? So Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, it's actually unless you gnaw on his flesh (laughs) and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who gnaw on my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He really grosses them out. I mean, he just presses this all the way to its full conclusion. But this is not his final word. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me, just plain eats me, will live because of me. 
This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like that which your ancestors ate and they died, but the one who eats this bread will live forever. He says these things while he was teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. But many of his disciples heard it. They said, this teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? But Jesus, being aware that his disciples were complaining about it, said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is useless. That's his bottom line. All this other, he's leading them on a journey because they're so tied to eating and appetite and all these things that they think are going to give them life. And they can't trust unless he keeps doing one sign after another. He's trying to tell them, this isn't where it at is at. The Spirit gives life. So I would like to suggest to you, you go back to John 4, and Jesus' discussion of the women at the well. She says to him, Sir, where do you get that living water are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well with his sons and flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may be thirst, never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Now he's tr- she's trying to back away and push him off. And so Jesus talks about her, right, you have no husband, for you have five husbands. You've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see you that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you say the place where Jesus, where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Uh, my eyes aren't working too well today. <laughs> Jesus said to her, Women, believe me, the hour is coming when you shall worship the Father neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So we're coming back, really, to the same theme over and over again. And by the way, the great motif of the Gospel of John is something that John talks about in 1 1 John 5. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Verse 6. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one that testifies, for the Spirit is truth. There are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. That's the motif of the Gospel of John. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. John's great emphasis is on the witness, the witness to the truth. And so, just going quickly through the Gospel of John, in chapter 1, you have baptism of Jesus, the water. water. In Cana, in the chapter 2, mm-hmm. you have the water turning into wine, mm-hmm. which is water coming, coming blood, because the wine represents 
the blood of Jesus in the New Testament. And that's true of uh, Revelation as well, I believe. So these just aren't stories about Jesus changing water to blood? And I'm talking about the motif that John is using. I got the beginning part as a kid. Chapter, chapter 3, this is the Spirit. The wind blows. The Spirit is like the wind. You hear the sound of it. You don't know where it comes from. So it is every of everyone that's born of the Spirit. Chapter four, you have the water. Chapter five, you have water again, and the healing at the pool of Bethesda. The water does nothing. Jesus is the one who heals, and that prepares the reader for chapter six, where he really hits the blood and the flesh. What we just read. That we just read. And what the life, and what the life is. The life is Jesus. The bread, Jesus is the bread of life. And after that, John kind of backs off of those metaphors, and he goes to others. Chapter 7 is really quite lacking in metaphors. It's a story of the Jews being coming to try to uh, get him. And then chapter 8 is a discourse by Jesus about the truth. Ah, if the life is the light of the world, if the blood is in the life, and the life is the light, and Jesus is, and it's Jesus' blood, and Jesus' life is the light of the world, then the blood represents the truth that Jesus came to reveal. And and so that's where John goes. I mean, John goes. He puts Jesus' discourse about the truth. You shall know the truth. And the truth will make you free. And then he moves to the metaphor of blindness and receiving sight, so that you can see the light. Chapter 9. Then he moves to the shepherd, and he says very plainly, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Satan is the destroyer. I am the restorer. I am the savior. I am the life giver. And then he raises a man to life. So now you're talking the end of this thing. These are the three things that bear witness to the life, the spirit, the water, and the blood. But this is the life. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And uh, from then on, you don't have these symbols so much, but you have a lot about judgment. And I want to finish on that note since we're talking about the close of probation. We got a little bit sidetracked on the blood, but I think this is important to understand things. It's John who records the spear being thrust into Jesus' side and the blood and the water coming out in two distinct streams. And John says, this is the witness. What is the witness of? Well, we have traditionally assumed that that unique separation of the blood and the water, which is very uncommon, as a sign Jesus died of a broken heart. That he didn't die with direct punishment from God. He, draw, he died because he could not feel his Father's presence because he bore the sins of human beings. And sin cut him off from the Father, as it were. The Father was right there at the cross, but Jesus couldn't sense that. And then you go to other texts that the blood cleanses us from sin. 
the blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin? There's quite a few texts on that. Well, what, what sanctifies us? Uh, John 17. 17. Uh, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Or you could say sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. The truth sets you free. The truth makes... So the truth is what the light... The life is the light of the world. It's all about the truth about God. Now let's go to the judgment. John 3, verse 16. So God, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who trusts in him, and note the word, may not perish, not, may not be put to death, but may not perish. Mm. And when the Hebrew, I mean the Hebrew, the Greek actually says, it's a middle, it's a middle mood. It, you, sh- you should not perish, you should not destroy yourself. So you could read this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that everyone who believes in him may not destroy themselves, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send his son into the world to judge the world. My version has condemned, but the word in Greek is judge. He did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who trust in him are not judged, but those who do not trust are judged already because they have not trusted in the name. Name represents character of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. You could say, and this is the close of probation. That light has that the light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were de- deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. This is the judgment in the world. Not God's decision about us, but our decision about God. And he says it again. This is after Jesus says, The Father has given all judgment into my hands. John um, 12, 44. And Jesus cried aloud, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but him who sent me. Why? Because Jesus is the full revelation of the Father. 12, what? 12:44. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. That's what he said. This is a summary of everything he said in John. And I have come as light into the world so that everyone who trusts in me should not remain in darkness. I do not judge anyone who hears my words and does not keep them, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. On the last day, the word that I have spoken will serve as judge, for I have not spoken on my own, but the Father who sent me has given me himself given me a commandment about what to say and what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I speak, therefore, I speak just as the Father has told me. This is the light that comes into the world. We accept the light. The light is our judge. We reject the light. The light is our judge. 
So it's it's a very different look at judgment than we have traditionally read, and and we we tend to go back to Daniel seven and the books being open in heaven. Ellen White says, Ellen White says, when those books are open before the wicked, their mind becomes conscious of everything they've ever done. Those books are in our heads. That's the only way I can construe that. And, and somebody pointed that out to me many years ago in class down in the sanctuary. They said, look, our brains record everything we've thought, everything we've done, everything we've... It, our, the record of our lives is right here in our heads. And that's the book that God opens. And we remember everything we've done. And it sounds like judgment is choice, mm-hmm. our choice, which is exactly what what happened in creation mm-hmm. um, as far as giving that choice that's why he put the tree there mm-hmm. not because he was trying to mm-hmm. trick or whatever mm-hmm. well, 47 and 48 which you read yeah. is saying that he's not come to judge us mm-hmm. but people that reject him they've judged themselves, themselves. Mm-hmm. they judge themselves the truth the truth that, that they rejected is their judge was how they perceive God too. So God wants it. to save us. Yeah. I read for themselves. I read uh, a quote that uh, I don't know who wrote it, but it was interesting. It says, and I shared that with my wife last night. It says the the difference between religion and the gospel. Religion says I messed up. My dad's gonna kill me. The gospel says I messed up. I need to call my daddy. So I think that how you perceive God is just a difference. So God is. It's for us. That is, he's not the one who he's, he's not the one who destroys us. He's yeah. the one who saves us. Exactly. And and um, it's just it's it's a huge yeah. difference. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's why when the wicked kneel and say, "Just and true are your ways, O the King of Saints," they don't say, "Loving and kind are your ways." Exactly. They can't. They don't see him that way. Yeah. yeah. Well, this has been great and glorious. Thank you all for participating. And let's have closing prayer. Gracious Father, we we thank you that you are the light that lightens everyone coming into the world. That you are the life giver. That light is the life that you give to us. May we embrace it fully. May we share it with others. And may we be ready to see you as you really are so that when Satan comes as masquerading as you, we are fully not deceived because we know you. We know the real Jesus. We thank you in his name. Amen. Amen.